Hello and welcome to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer, a series featuring conversations with experts to share recent market developments, key insights and strategic inputs from around the globe. In each episode, we cut through the noise to bring practical advice and macro research on today's shifting economic and market landscape. Please listen to the important legal information at the end of this podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our latest episode of Beyond Markets. My name is Helen Freer. I'm an investment writer at Julius Baer, and I'm delighted to be joined today by our head of research, Christian Gattaker, and our head of research in Asia, Mark Matthews. Hi, Christian and Mark. Hi, Helen. Hello, Helen. So thank you both very much for joining me. We're going to talk today about Julius Baer's market outlook for 2023. The current market environment, how we see this year panning out in terms of growth and inflation, and of course, what it all means for investors. And we'll be covering our views on both equities and fixed income. But I'd like to start by asking you, Christian, where do you think growth and inflation are heading this year? Well, Helen, in uh, 2022, uh, economic growth declined and inflation skyrocketed, so classic stagflationary environment. In 2023, we are expecting a major slowdown with both growth and inflation rate set to slow. And uh, monetary policy normalization expected to take its toll, but pandemic-related constraints will ease. And inflation pressure should uh, ease markedly in the first half of 2023 and keep softening at a slower pace throughout the remainder of the year. And this should happen as commodity prices cool down, as supply chain bottlenecks ease, and we see a normalization of the pent-up demand that we witnessed after the pandemic. And do you have a figure in mind for where you think inflation will get to this year? Yeah, roughly ballpark numbers are uh, global inflation cooling down from 8% in 2022 to 5 in 2023, which is still high. Uh, but much lower. And uh, as for growth, uh, there is no doubt that global growth will slow in 2023, most likely to below 2% from more than 3% in 2022. Okay, but that's still a positive number. So you still expect some growth and you aren't concerned about a recession. Is that right? We are concerned, as you always should be, uh, but we think this is not the base scenario. Uh, We expect a growth of below 2%, so no recession, but still a figure in positive territory and we don't expect uh, anything on a global scale in the sense of a synchronized global recession in the next 12 months. And uh, we think that the strong employment trends and in particular divergent regional dynamics should prevent a global recession. Now, Mark, let's uh, talk about central banks. We obviously saw a dramatic shift in policy by the major central banks last year. What are you expecting from them this year? Helen, we think central banks will slow their tightening considerably in the first half of this year. And in fact, if you add up all of the rate hikes minus the rate cuts of all the central banks around the world, the peak was already in October last year. And October was also the month when the Reserve Bank of Australia was the first of the major central banks to express a more cautious view in its statement in October. It noted for the first time that the outlook for the global economy had begun to deteriorate and household spending in Australia was responding to their tighter monetary policy. And then in December, the Bank of Canada and the Bank of England also sounded caution in their statements. I'm telling you this because there's a belief, maybe it's just an old wives' tale, I don't know, that the so-called Anglo-Saxon banks 
tend to act as a group. Well, if it's true, then the Federal Reserve should start toning down its rhetoric too. In fact, we even think there's a chance the Fed cuts rates in the second half of the year. Okay, and another topic we certainly can't leave out is the energy crisis. Where do we stand there, Mark? Do you think there's a real risk to the supply of energy in Europe? I suppose that's a non-consensus view we have, because we think uh, Europe's energy supply risks are very minimal. And simply put, there is enough natural gas around the world for Europe to compensate for Russia's supply cuts in part thanks to Asia's pivot to coal, nuclear, and renewables. On top of that, we think overall energy prices will continue to fall, and that benefits Europe much more than it does the United States, especially psychologically. And, and psychology is important because there was so much written, much of it wrong in our opinion, by the way, about how Europe was in such deep trouble because it had to import most of its energy. And it's true, most of Europe's energy is imported but those imports are slightly less than 60%. It's not a crazy high number like 90% or something like that. And so that dependency is dropping fast, especially as Europe installs more renewable energy of its own. Okay, so if I'm to sum up what we've talked about so far, we're expecting a slowdown in growth, but also lower inflation. And headwinds related to the energy crisis should fade what does this mean for investors then? Where do you see opportunities this year, Christian? As you say, Helen, uh, as we enter 2023, uh, global growth is slowing and inflation is slowing too, but remains elevated. Thus, companies are continuing to reduce their earnings expectations for this year. And this favors defensives, quality stocks, in our view. Some of their attributes are strong product differentiation, quality balance sheets, high free cash flows and strong consumer loyalty. However, our focus is also on companies with defensive business models, especially given our expectation of slower growth ahead. What are these companies? What sort of sectors would you highlight? On a sector level, we like healthcare and basic consumer goods, so goods that are required throughout an economic cycle. Healthcare uh, remains our most preferred defensive sector with a focus on large cap pharmaceutical companies, including biotech. This segment consists of many high-quality companies who have high demand for their products in both good and bad times. Thus, large-cap pharmaceutical companies have strong pricing power. Moreover, given the sector's low sensitivity to input costs, persistently high inflation is less of an issue. However, not all healthcare subsectors are defensive in nature. There are also cyclical segments, such as medtech and life science tools, and these may well become the more interesting segments as the year progresses. And what's our preference in terms of regions? Helen, our focus is initially on US equities, given that growth in the US is expected to hold up relatively well compared to Europe, and we expect further interest rate increases in the Eurozone as well. Within Europe, though, uh, we still like Swiss equities as they offer relative resilience in a difficult market environment, which should lead to outperformance in the first half of 2023. And what about as the economy recovers, which is what we expect at some point then late 2023 and going into 2024, is that right? 
Yes. So as the year progresses, we think uh, we could see that the cooling in economic activity also cools down inflationary pressures. And this should allow central banks to backpedal on some of their monetary tightening. As economic activity begins to stabilize, this should open up opportunities in cyclical markets across the globe. In things like export-dependent European equities, they have a positive exposure to global growth or small cap stocks, which tend to be more cyclical than the more diversified large cap stocks. And bottom up, cyclical opportunities across sectors such as automotive, machinery and equipment and logistics. And I guess the key is going to be when uh, to start shifting over to cyclicals. Yes, indeed. Yeah, I mean, that's a tough one. And you hardly get the timing right ever. We think this is also a gradual process. So we would start piling into uh, the more cyclical sectors over time. But I think leading indicators should start to bottom or we might see early signals of, uh, of a pivot in central banks policies. I think these signals would then pave the way for a more benign cyclical outlook. Okay, so we think start off more defensively then and shifting during the year to a more cyclical stance to benefit from the economic recovery. And what about emerging markets, Mark? Helen, just like in developed markets, there are cyclical emerging markets and there are structural emerging markets. The structural ones, as the name implies, are the ones to own for the long term. And our favorite among them is India with its strong underlying growth trends and large domestic market. And Indians are increasingly making equities part of their retirement portfolios. And that's probably the best vote of confidence you can get when locals own their own market for their retirement. You may be interested to know that India is the only market in Asia that comes close to the S&P in terms of cumulative returns over the last 30 years. It's averaged 9% in dollars, including dividends, per year over the last 30 years. And then comes Taiwan and Korea at about 7%, Indonesia and Singapore about 6%. Japan had a measly 2.7%. China, believe it or not, only returned 0.7% per year over the last 30 years. Now, past returns aren't a guarantee of future performance, but barring big changes in each of those countries, which we don't really foresee, I don't see why the variance between these markets should change much over the next 30 years. And you just mentioned China there, Mark. People have been talking a lot about the reopening of China. What's your take on this? To what extent is the country reopening? Well, Helen, China has changed in a way that's almost unimaginable from even a month ago, because literally overnight, they got rid of all COVID controls, all the tests, the quarantines, the closed borders. So all of a sudden, we see Chinese tourists here in Singapore for the first time in three years. And not just that, the so-called wolf warriors are gone. Those are the strident and assertive diplomats who did so much damage to China's image over the last five years. The new foreign minister, Ching Gang, is the former ambassador to the United States. He's not a wolf warrior. And the most visible wolf warrior, Zhao Lijian, has been transferred from his high-profile role as foreign ministry spokesman to deputy director of the Ocean Affairs Department's Division of Borders and Maritime Affairs. It's not a demotion, but it does indicate China just doesn't want to be seen as directly rewarding that kind of confrontational and combative behavior anymore. 
and they're buying coal from Australia again, and they're backstocking their property sector. It's such a big change. There's so many changes. Some people are even calling it a silent coup. Of course, no one knows exactly what's going on in the inner sanctum of Beijing, but all of this is market-friendly stuff. Okay, so what does this mean for investors then? Well, Hong Kong is already up 40% from its October low, but it's still down 40% from its 2018 high, and I think it has further to go. I think there is a trade in China. You may remember Peter Lynch, the star value investor fund manager at Fidelity in the 1980s. And one of his dictums was that if you could ever find a stock where the price earnings ratio was numerically lower than the dividend yield, then that stock was worthy of investigation because as a rule of thumb, that shouldn't happen. If you just think about the American stock market, for example, the price earnings ratio is supposed to be around 15 times, dividend yields supposed to be about 3%. Well, I can give you a long list of companies in Hong Kong even after the Hang Seng Index has risen 40%, where the price earnings ratio is lower than the dividend yield. And I'm talking big gaps, like three times price earnings versus 10% dividend yield, or five times price earnings versus 15% dividend yield, that kind of thing. And the pulse of what's happening in China goes all the way through Asia, by the way. And it's also positive for European companies that benefit from increasing demand from China. And what about the so-called fang stocks, Christian? Are these a thing of the past now? Uh, not a thing of the past, but not at the forefront of, of the next big move as they were in the past decade. And, you know, if you look at uh, the market cap, I mean, the combined market cap of the FANGs rose from uh, 1 trillion, 1,000 billion US dollars in 2013 to over 10 trillion by the end of 2021. And at their peak in the summer of 2020, they accounted for over 25% of the S&P 500 index. But after being at the forefront of shareholder value creation over recent years, we are now starting to see a gradual shift and the end of the FANG supremacy. And what do you put this down to? What do you think the reasons are for this shift? Well, first of all, the business models of these companies are under serious pressure. And that's uh, raising some questions about how viable these companies will be in the future. They have spiraling costs, which they really need to focus on. And we think that some of these companies won't be able to reverse the trend now, but some should be able to transform and mature into boring quality companies. So we need to wait and see then which companies are able to transform themselves. Is that right? Yes, indeed. And uh, we expect that this is accompanied by some form of derating. So most probably, you know, these high flying expectations of double digit growth forever in the future, these times are over and we are turning more realistic, which also means that maybe this evaluation premium, which was immense at some stage, is shrinking further. Now, we've talked a lot about equities. What about fixed income? With significantly higher interest rates, I think things are looking up for fixed income. What are your thoughts, Mark? What areas should bond investors focus on? Well, that's right, Alan. Things are looking up. So the end of financial repression, in other words, the end of ultra-low interest rates, reset valuations substantially in fixed income. Just to give you an example, the iShares 7- to 10-year Treasury bond ETF lost 15% of its value last year, and the year before, it lost 3%. Now, there were two times in history 
that treasuries lost value two years in a row. But I can tell you, and the data goes back to the 19th century, that never before have treasuries been down for three years in a row. And with the treasuries derating, of course, everything else in fixed income went down too. And that means it's now possible to invest in higher quality bonds and get decent returns. And higher rated bonds tend to have a longer average maturity. And that's a good thing to own if you think that rates have peaked and are going to come down, which we do. And we have an overweight rating on high investment grade bonds for the reasons you've just mentioned. This is in US dollars, right? So what about euro bonds? We're more cautious about adding duration in European bonds, Helen. And the reason why is because European rate hike cycle is a lot less advanced than it is in the United States. And inflation shows clearer signs of rolling over in the United States than it does in the eurozone. So intuitively, if risk-free yields are likely closer to their peak in the U.S., that should mean more upside for bonds there than in Europe. I might add, by the way, that we do have an overweight rating on U.S. dollar and euro low investment grade corporate bond debt with shorter maturities. Those kind of bonds are a complement to the safer and longer duration ones I just talked about because they have higher coupons, but still relatively low default risk. And we don't like the riskier segments at the moment then. Is that right? If you mean high yield, Helen, then the answer is not right now, no. The Federal Reserve's senior loan officer survey has proven to be a good lead indicator for credit defaults. And I can tell you that it's been rising sharply in recent months, meaning banks have been tightening their lending standards and their customers are more cautious about taking on new debt. Well, when defaults rise, high-yield bonds historically underperform. When we do see signs of a recovering global economy, as Christian mentioned, that'll be probably some time later in the year, maybe late in the second quarter, then it might be appropriate to move back down the credit rating ladder. But that's not just yet. I would say, though, that our fixed income analysts are seeing many drivers becoming more supportive for emerging market bonds. I just mentioned China. Chinese bonds make up a big part of the emerging market bond indices. And China's opening up much faster than anyone expected. And then if we're right about rate cuts in the U.S. sometime later this year, that should mean a weaker dollar. And that's always helpful for emerging markets. So for all those reasons, we upgraded emerging market hard currency bonds to overweight last month with a bias toward quality, mind you. Great. Thank you very much, both of you, for the interesting conversation and for sharing your thoughts on the market outlook. Thanks for having us, Helen. Yes, thank you, Helen. And with that, we conclude this edition of the Beyond Markets podcast. Thanks again to Christian and Mark for joining me today. And thank you all for tuning in. We hope that you enjoyed listening to this conversation and that you will join us again soon. Bye for now. You have been listening to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer. If you like what you heard, subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. To learn more about Julius Baer, our people, our latest thinking. Visit us at www.juliusbear.com. We will be back with a brand new episode soon. This is a podcast disclaimer. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast constitute marketing material and are not the result of independent financial or investment research. 
The podcast content is intended for information purposes only and does not constitute an offer, a recommendation or an invitation by or on behalf of Julius Baer to buy or sell any securities, security-based derivatives or other products or to participate in any particular trading strategy in any jurisdiction. Julius Baer does not accept liability for any loss arising from the use of the podcast content. Please refer to www.juliusbear.com forward slash legal forward slash podcasts for further important legal information. Get ready for the day ahead. Moving Markets is a daily market news briefing from Julius Bear's leading experts. You'll hear all about the latest ups and downs across asset classes, the underlying drivers, and our thoughts on where markets are heading. Search for Moving Markets on your favourite podcast player.